teaching in the first part of Romans 9 is meant to comfort us and any doubts we might have about the faithfulness of God to His promise. The faithfulness and the righteousness of God are upheld when Paul teaches us that God has always kept His saving word to Israel by explaining to us last week in verses 1-14 through that in God's unfolding plan throughout history, to bring all things to their fulfillment in His Son Abraham's seed, Jesus Christ, Israel is not the nation in the Middle East, not mainly in all of its physical descendants, but is the name for all God's people, both Jew and Gentile, that He saves by grace through faith in that Son. The means by which God carries out His plan and accomplishes His saving purpose in the world through the promise that He made to Abraham is election, God's divine calling. Romans 9-11 through 11 are so crucial not only for understanding the nature of God's promise, but for how we are to rightly interpret Scripture in light of what Jesus has accomplished as the true seed of Abraham. God had a plan to save people from every nation through Jesus Christ and chose the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to bring that Savior into the world over against what would have been natural and normal and expected according to human ways and means. To that issue, Paul now turns beginning in verse 14 of Romans 9. Thankfully, God does not act according to what is fair, but according to His mercy. Let me pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word and Your truth that are unchanging and solid and perfect and reliable and authoritative and sufficient for us. Lord, help me preach Your Word like that's what it is today. Please help everyone to understand and believe these words. May Christ be glorified that You may be all in all. We pray and ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 14 of Romans 9. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? That's the next question Paul knows his opponents will ask in light of what he said in these previous verses. Is God unrighteous? Is He unfair? Shouldn't God have chosen Esau, not Jacob? Esau was the firstborn like Ishmael was. And really, shouldn't God be acting to make sure every ethnic Israelite is saved rather than turning, as you say, Paul, in your gospel to save the Gentiles? But we know from verses 10 through 13 that God makes His choices in verse 11 so that the purpose of God according to election might stand. God told Rebekah in Genesis 25 and 23 that the twin who was born first to her, Esau, would actually serve the younger twin, be subservient to the second, Jacob. And then Paul quoted the Old Testament prophet Malachi, chapter 1 in verses 2 and 3, to explain how this choice worked itself out, how it looked in history. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. God chose Jacob, Israel, to be the earthly vessel through which he would bring Abraham's seed to all nations, the blessing through Jesus Christ, not the nation that came from Esau, which was Edom. God had dealt with Israel throughout her history the way that he had, watching over them, carrying them, fighting for them, blessing them, even in their covenant-breaking rebellion, while letting Esau, for the most part, languish as a nation, because he had a specific purpose. 
and that is to show that he grants the promise as a gift of his mercy to whom he chooses, not as payment for what is due because he's obligated to that by physical, natural birth. The purpose of God according to election is why God doesn't choose the firstborn, but the second, understood in that culture as the lesser, the disadvantaged. He wants to show what kind of Savior he is. He's the kind of Savior that saves by grace, not by works, as a gift, not by what is due. But if to do that, he chose the second and overlooked the rightful heir, it begs the question, is he really merciful at all? Or is he just unfair? Does this way of working out his plan, choosing Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, and now including Gentiles among his people, mean that God is unrighteous? Because what would have been expected in this system of working is that God would go on to make sure that every single Israelite person receives Christ, the whole nation that came from Abraham. But God doesn't do that. In Paul's gospel, it seems as though God is adamant to call Gentiles to be a part of his people. And it was one thing. They knew that in some sense the Gentiles would be included in something. So it's, it's one thing if God wanted to throw some crumbs to Gentiles. But as it turns out, the way it's looking now with so many Israelite people being condemned because they reject Christ, that the Gentiles were intended all along by God to be a bona fide part of God's people since the promise was first made to Abraham. Because that, because what makes one a true son of Abraham is faith in the God who has mercy, not physical descent. It never has been. Shouldn't all the promises and blessings go to Israel? They, in Exodus 4.22, were God's firstborn son in the world. That's what they were called. But we should know when we see that there's a pattern. God usually sets aside the firstborn son and favors the latecomer. That's been the pattern all throughout Scripture. But his opponents are asking, clearly, shouldn't all the promises and blessings go to them? They've earned them by right. It's only natural. They're the firstborn. The Bible even says that. But not only will God include Gentiles, he will exclude many Israelites. And Paul is now answering Israel's objection to all this among his opponents in Rome who would say, unfair, does this make God unrighteous in the second part of verse 14? Certainly not. There's your answer. But he goes on. Paul has established that what makes one a part of the family of God is God's mercy. Not what people deserve by right or by natural laws. God works by mercy. And mercy is the opposite of what someone is owed or what someone is due. Paul vindicates God's righteousness with God's own word by quoting Exodus 33:19 in verse 15. For he says to Moses, so here's why it's not unrighteous for God to choose one over the other. I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So God speaks <clears throat> as though it's up to him who receives mercy and compassion. Precisely because he isn't obligated to give it to anyone in the first place. For that to be true, that God would be obligated to something, what law is more powerful than God that could force God to act in order to be considered righteous? What is there outside of God, the standard outside of Him, that if He doesn't meet it, uh, I don't think you're good, I don't think you're righteous. Verse 16, So then, because of the fact that God will have mercy on whom He has mercy, 
It is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Being a recipient of the promise is not a matter of being paid what we're due or would receive in natural and expected ways. Being a recipient of God's mercy has nothing to do, nothing, with our ethnicity or bloodline, ultimately our free will or our effort or our works and accomplishments. Just look at the words in the verse, right? That's not the nature of God's mercy. Mercy is not something we receive by birthright. That by being born, God is obligated now to show us mercy, especially if you're born into the right bloodline. God doesn't owe mercy to anyone. The only reason for mercy then is found in the heart of God himself who decides to be merciful at all because that's who he is. He's not merciful because of who we are. So here Paul brings in another Old Testament example now to make his case. To show how scripture has already taught this. Pick it up in verse 17. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh. For this very purpose I have raised you up. That I may show my power in you. And that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore. Once again Paul states the case. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills. And he hardens whom he wills. The scripture says to the Pharaoh. So the scripture is God speaking. Here in Exodus 9.16. That God is the one that made Pharaoh the ruler of Egypt. Precisely because. Or precisely so. It appears. God could show his power over him. In bringing the plagues on Egypt. And freeing his people from slavery. Now that sounds very harsh. And unfair. Doesn't it? God raised Pharaoh up to disobey his command through Moses to let the people of Israel go from slavery in Egypt because God had a purpose. Again, he's always acting according to his purpose. And here it was so he could destroy Pharaoh in Egypt and show to all the nations that he, Israel's God, is the true God and not their gods. Therefore, in verse 18, what Scripture has always taught is that God has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills he Hardens. Now, what is happening overall in this section in Romans? What is Paul trying to show or to prove? Is he trying to give an exposition of the doctrine of double predestination? No. This isn't a systematic theological text that lays out the doctrine of double predestination. That is what it seems like is being taught there in these verses Some are chosen to go to heaven, and some are chosen to go to hell. And people can can try to get around that. That, That's what double predestination is. And some would say, well, God doesn't choose the people that that go to hell. Um, You know, they, he leaves them to their own thing. And beloved, we're not solving anything. I don't think that's what the scripture teaches, but this is what people will argue. We have to view the section, if we're to understand the parts, We have to view the whole in light of the points Paul wants to make by bringing up these things from the Old Testament. Could we conclude, first of all, from all Scripture that God is capricious and needlessly harsh and usually not merciful or kind? Could we conclude that from all the Scripture? No, but we do have to reckon with texts like this one, and this one is difficult. 
So let us remember the question that Paul is asking or that Paul is answering here. Is God unrighteous and unfair because he chose Isaac, not Ishmael, Jacob, not Esau, and then raised up Pharaoh to defy him so that he would make known his power in the earth? The answer to that is no. Well, okay, why not? Because it sure seems like it. The foundational and most important point is this. We we could start here. Maybe it will help us understand. Does God actually owe mercy indiscriminately to every single person? Does the Bible teach that? The the source of our truth, does it teach that the reason God is merciful is because he's obligated to be and he owes it to everybody just because they've been born as a human being? Does anyone deserve mercy? The answer is no. So what does it actually mean if God shows mercy anywhere to anyone that he's merciful because he's obligated to no one to be merciful? If God hardens a sinner in their sinfulness, he's not being unrighteous. He's being a just judge. He's giving someone what they deserve and what that person has made clear they want. Secondly, who decides, again, if if God is unmerciful or unrighteous, by what standard could we judge God? Well, that's what Paul is getting to because he knows what his words are doing inside of us here. God is the creator. God decides what is righteous, not the creation. I mean, just... We know this is how it works, even if we don't want to admit it when it comes to God. We know this is how it works. So my son and I, the other night, you might have seen it on Facebook, we finished uh, this Lego Ferrari. It was on the box. It said 8 plus. My opinion probably should have said 50 plus because it took like five days. Right. But when you're making Legos, they have stickers that you're supposed to put on. Could you imagine just one example? If, if, if Legos said to you. Um, that's not where you put that sticker. I don't want that sticker to go there. That sticker should go over here. I don't want that piece to go here. I want that piece to go over here. Could you imagine if Legos said that to you? Here's the first reason that Paul says it's not unrighteous for God to act this way. Because it's up to him who gets mercy in the first place, not us. So in reality, rather than being upset when a sinner is punished, we should be shocked that anyone is getting mercy. God is not bound to show mercy to us. Mercy is his prerogative. Mercy is a matter of what God decides to do. It's not an obligation he has to everyone equally. And we don't want it to be about, listen, be careful what you wish for. We don't want it to be about what God is actually obligated to do anyway. Because if that's the case, we're all going to hell. The last thing we want, the last thing we want, the last thing I want is for God to be fair. And only give you what you deserve and have earned because that's your due. If God gives me my due, I would have been dead before I was born. We all deserve wrath and condemnation. We are sinners all, guilty all. But 
All that philosophical talk I just did, it, it doesn't determine the issue. Because right? you can always create categories and force things into them. And so something deeper is going on here than philosophical reasoning or conclusions. That's just to kind of help us understand. Remember the context, beloved. Especially in difficult passages. Context, context, context. We do that with everything we read. Please don't stop doing it when it comes to the Bible. This is all about whether or not God is actually faithful to His promises. Can He be trusted to save you when He makes promises to do it, even in the worst times of our lives? Paul has explained how God is, in fact, faithful to His promises once we understand to whom they've actually been made in the first place. But the reason God works like this is His eternal plan and what He wants to accomplish. God making choices that go against the grain of what is natural or expected, says something very deliberately and intentionally about how God saves, period. Paul knows what the next objection to the righteousness of God will be in light of what he said about Pharaoh in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? Pharaoh did God's will. How can God judge him? Why does God judge Pharaoh for hardening his heart when God is the one who hardened his heart? The Bible does not avoid the tough questions its words make us ask. The first answer, the foundational one, is given in verses 20 and 21. But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? That's a big fat because I said so. And you've said that if you're a parent. You've said it. You know that when the time is right, you can pull rank. We're not arguing today. It's not a discussion. This isn't diplomacy. I said it. I'm the dad. You do it. That's the way it works. We've all done it. Now notice... The text does go on from here. It doesn't stop right there, does it? God doesn't leave it at that. And the thing is, he would be perfectly just to to just say that. Why are you little ants questioning me? That's the way it is. Let's move on. But he goes on. He goes on. He's going to explain this to us, but we need to understand that even that, even the explanation is mercy. God doesn't owe us an explanation if you want to get right down to it. That's not why He gives one. He gives one because He wants us to understand that He's righteous so that we don't doubt His promise. The definitive answer, though, is actually this. Who do you think you are to question God like this? And We do it all the time. You ever heard people say in light of a text like this, well, that's who God is. I'm not going to worship Him. Well, okay. That's not my God. Then your God's an idol. Because this is the God of Scripture. Who do I think I am to question God like this? Well, I'll tell you this much, Tony. I'm not a Lego. I'm a human being. I have a mind. I have a right to question. You're right. We're not Legos. I'm sorry. We're lumps of clay. Lumps of clay. 
So before we're duly humbled by the fact that God actually explains himself to us, like Jacob, we wrestle with him until he blesses us with an answer. We need to remember this going in. We have no right whatsoever to be asking such questions as though God is in our debt and he owes us one. What God owes us is justice. Again, if we want to get technical and start talking about fair, because we're sinners all from the moment of conception. How in the world, the Bible's asking, does the thing formed say to the one who formed it, hey, who do you think you are making me like this? How dare you? Just think about if clay could do that. Just you see how crazy this is. Where did the clay, like, we're all little, you know, how dare you? We're all little Greta Thunbergs and sound just about as silly. How dare you? We're created beings. We were made by someone. We didn't just don't act like evolution is true in your heart and then try to deny it with your lips. We, we, we didn't come just out of the clean air and God owes us all this stuff. We, we were made by somebody. We are owned by somebody. By what principle do we think we have the right to say, hey, you did that wrong. You made me wrong. You can't do that. It's not fair. We need to face that or mercy will not land on us the way God intends it to. Clearly. That's right. I, I keep, I, we, we forget I don't deserve this. God doesn't owe me this. We're not above Israel. We're not better than Israel. If God doesn't owe it to them, why would we think He owes it to us or to the rest of us? It's absurd to think like that. It hurts our faith to think like that. And before you say, well, I'm, I'm a human being and I have dignity and all this, and if I want to say it, then I'll say it because I have a mind. And... Okay, if, if I trust that then if, if that's the case and you're consistent in that, you'd never have a problem with your child when they say, Why? The next time you make a ruler, give an order. Right? Hey, it's time to get to bed. Why? Oh, dear exalted little child. What was I thinking when I told thou that it was time for thee to go to bed at 9 p.m.? Forgive me as to act as though I've made thee and can tell thee what to do. Right? You don't say that. And if you do, you're a weirdo. Nobody says that to a kid. Right? Why? You, sometimes you explain it. Other times you're like, so help me. Just get in the car or whatever it is. Right? We're not doing this today. Everybody in here knows that God is right. It's deep in our hearts. We know it. No more games with God. We know that God is just and God is right. And we're on the hook here. God is the potter. And the potter alone has the right. The potter holds the rights. So if anybody can talk about right and do and deserved and worthy, it's God. It's not us. He has the right to make whatever he wants from the lump of clay on which he's working since he's the one who created it. So there is a sense 
in which we should actually cover our mouths and ask for forgiveness for being so arrogant to even act as though God might be unrighteous or unjust or unfair. And yet, we're still here. We're still here. And in this passage, God walks us through what He's doing and why and how He's doing it. And this is His mercy to us in our weakness because He loves us like little children and He knows we don't understand. We're dust. We're lumps of clay. We don't know how to make sense of all this, God. Right. But the answer is not to get mad at Him and start blaming Him and accusing Him of being unrighteous or unfair. There's no hope there. There's no peace there. We've all been mad at our kids when they're rebellious or snotty and forget how the parent-child relationships work, but hopefully we don't throw them out of the house when they're like that and their weaknesses. We don't explain ourselves because we owe them an explanation. When we decide to explain ourselves, it's because we love them and we don't want them to misunderstand our words for them, our rules for them, our desires for them. Because if we damage that, if we damage the whole relationship, they'll doubt our love forever. Right? Right. We need the whole text to understand the parts here. So let's keep reading in verse 22. What if God, wanting to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy, which He had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So, first of all, God is not capricious and cold. You know, just closing his eyes. Yes, no, yes, no. No, 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 no. He doesn't even do that with open eyes. It's not how he works. He had specific reasons, and they all related to the fact that actually God wants to be glorified as God more than any other reason for his mercy, not for his wrath. By the way, let's skip to the end of this section for the spoiler here in all this. Right? Flip over real quick to verse 32 in chapter 11. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that He might have mercy on all. That's where this is going. Actually, remember Romans 1? All have been consigned to disobedience, to follow their own hearts and their own desires in sinful idol worship. Everybody has been. Every human being. That's why we are the way we are. So that God might have mercy on all of us. So just as we need to understand words in verse 11 like loved and hated in terms of God's purpose and plan, we need to understand words like mercy and hardened in terms of his purpose and plan. So, again, if this section is doing anything, it's teaching us the importance of defining all of our terms biblically. And we find here God does not harden like God shows mercy. In fact... It's exactly the opposite. That's how Paul answers this objection to God's righteousness, by explaining that. Pharaoh is a very interesting example to bring up. God absolutely hardened Pharaoh's heart so he wouldn't let the people go. And Pharaoh also hardened his heart so that Pharaoh wouldn't let the people go. 
God's hardening work is never spoken of in Exodus as though Pharaoh was just this super nice, gentle, kind, tolerant, loving human being walking around every day, patting all the Israelite slaves on the head. I'm so sorry that it's like this, that we're so hard on you guys. You're such worthwhile human beings with dignity and individuality. And I, I just, I want to bless you and care for you. And then unconditionally, God zaps him with hatred and changed his mind and refused. He changed his mind and just flat refused to let the people go. Pharaoh didn't have any intentions of letting the people go before he ever heard of Moses. He hated the Israelites. He was an awful ruler, a horrible man. He had been committing genocide. Egypt had been committing genocide against the Israelites. Pharaoh is the prototype for what it looks like when human beings get Romans 1. When we get what we want and therefore deserve. The Bible teaches that when God hardens, every instance we see of it, He's doing it conditionally based on the sinfulness already present in a person. But when God shows mercy, He does so unconditionally, not based at all on what that person has done or deserved. God's hardening is judgmental, not capricious. His mercy is gracious. Even here in verses 22 and 23, it doesn't explicitly say that God is the one that prepared the vessels of wrath for destruction. Just that they are prepared. Now, you can certainly infer that from verse 21, but we actually aren't sure since it's left open. And very interestingly, left open in light of what he's about to say about vessels of mercy in 23. He's very careful to reveal there that he was the one that prepared the vessels of mercy beforehand for glory. God says, I did that. I'm doing that. That he does say he has done it. Think of how Scripture speaks elsewhere in terms of Preparing beforehand. How does scripture speak of the hell prepared for the devil and all his angels? The Bible doesn't teach that hell was prepared for sinners. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. And those that reject Christ end up there by their own choice, by their own volition. What is Jesus preparing beforehand? A place for us, beloved. A place for us in John 14 for his children. God's hardening work in Scripture is always according to works. Always. God hardens people in their hardness. He's not unfair or unrighteous because he does that. That makes him a good, consistent judge. But when God shows mercy, the Scripture is adamant to tell us that's never according to works. Ever. Just like his choosing of Jacob over Esau and Isaac over Ishmael, the promise to save is never given based on what someone deserves or what they are due. God's desire to give mercy is based on his desire to be merciful and give salvation as a gift, not as due. When God shows mercy, not only is he not giving us what we do deserve, but is giving us what we don't deserve. 
Hardening is simple math. Mercy is not. God's wrath does not proceed from Him like our anger does because we've lost our temper. Don't think of God's wrath as that about God. God's wrath serves the purpose of God's mercy, His eternal plan to show grace. That's, that's Zephaniah 3.9 as, as early as we read something like that. There'll be all this wrath. Why? Four in verse nine, God desires to show salvation. God's wrath is related to judgment. It, it wouldn't be there if there wasn't sin. It's not intrinsic to his character like love says there is in First John. We see wrath. He, he makes us aware of it so that those who don't get it in verses 22 and 23 know what they deserved and should have gotten in order that their joy would be complete and God would be glorified for his mercy as he should be. None of us has the time to be blaming God for being a just judge and hardening sinners who don't want him anyway when he chooses to do that. We should just be thankful that in his heart he's merciful. Paul comes back to the issue at hand, doesn't he, in verse 24 very clearly. Is God unrighteous to reject the firstborn and call the second his seed instead? Is God unrighteous? Because he didn't make his promise to all of national Israel, but it turns out only to believing Jews and now Gentiles. No. For God shows mercy on whom he wills. Those that do not deserve it or would naturally naturally receive it. And hardens those he will since they were rejecting him in unbelief. If that's what he decides to do as he did in the case of Pharaoh. I would contend that if you're here this morning and you are rejecting Jesus. God's arms of mercy are open to you. And to come and receive him. Or receive him where you sit or where you sit and then come and tell me about it. That would be even better. This is the nature of God's mercy for the whole world. It's, it's based on his grace, not on do. God's promises are only for those of faith. Look at where he takes it. It will be done here in just a minute in verse 25. As he also says in Hosea. So Paul just gets all his theology on the gospel from the Old Testament. Okay. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, that they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before. Unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. So Paul backs up and he says, so are we clear to his Israelite, his Jewish opponents in Rome mainly? Not one Israelite, not one would be saved if God had not promised to show mercy, which you don't deserve. But he gives it. Because he's gracious. Let alone then. Any of us Gentiles. That are included now. We're dead in the water. This morning. Dead in the water. 
if not for God's mercy. Because what he owes us, beloved, is wrath. So thank God for Jesus Christ that he isn't fair. In whom God's mercy is poured out on us who don't deserve it. So election doesn't mean that God is capricious and has chosen some for salvation while specifically creating and designing others for damnation. Election is the means by which God shows us the nature of His mercy. The nature of it. How does it work? That God does not carry out His saving purpose on sinners conditionally or His promises conditionally based on what they do, good or bad, or by what they've earned or deserved by right or physical descent, but is entirely based on the fact, all of God's promises to whoever they've been made, that in spite of what we do, good or bad, He saves us unconditionally by His grace, which He's poured out on us through the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. So Jesus tells us in John 6, since we're dead in trespasses and sins, that in order to come to Him, we have to be called by God. But also... Whoever responds to that call by receiving his gospel, he will never cast out. So that's not what we're meant to do with the doctrine of election. Well, am I, am I allowed to come? Am I a chosen one? Is God's forgiveness really for me? I mean, what if I'm not elect? What, I keep struggling with my sin. I keep struggling. What if, I'm, what if I'm not elect? That's not the way it works or is meant to work or meant to be understood, beloved. If you come to Him, He will not cast you out. Period. Point blank. Go to Him. Make Him keep His word. He loves to do it. You cling to His robe with both your hands and you say, You said, you said that if I came to you, you would never cast me out. So you have to take me, all my sin, all my wickedness, all my rebellion, all the stuff I keep messing up. Again and again and again, you said that if I come to you, you would not cast me out. You said that if I confess my sins, you're faithful and just to forgive me of my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. So do it. Be God. Keep your word. Oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. If you decide to receive God's mercy, which you are all invited to do. It is because God woke you up from your spiritual grave and drew you to himself. For salvation is not a matter of our work or of our will in this text. It's ultimately a matter of the God who shows mercy, who does not act thankfully according to what we are due or we would all be condemned, but according to his mercy, which he pours out because he's good and because he's God. Would you stand, please? We'll sing a song of invitation before we take the Lord's Supper together. You are welcome to come receive God's mercy. You are welcome to receive it right where you are, as you are. God will keep His word to you. Do not be afraid. And don't believe that because I said it. Believe it because He said it. He has mercy for you. For you this morning. Receive Him. Confess your sins. And come on home. Stop this fighting nonsense.
Christian struggling with assurance. Stop not believing the gospel. Believe it.